Okay, well, welcome everybody to Gaia House for the retreat. What I'm going to do this evening is very simple. Um, no doubt many of you are very tired, so I'm going to keep it fairly simple this evening and <clears throat> we will just I'll just give you a short talk and then we'll do a short meditation and bed and start properly in the morning. Um, I just want to say a few things, just a, just a very, very few things this evening about what I think we're going to be doing in the retreat. Okay, well, it had a very fancy title, didn't it? I don't know if you noticed in the blurb, and it was a very nice, fancy title, you know, sort of um, mindfulness in the way of insight. Mindfulness, of course, is very much a buzzword these days. Um, I actually had a more prescriptive title, but I thought it probably wasn't a very good selling point. It should have been called, Are You Paying Attention? Um, because really, a lot of what we're going to be doing is learning to pay attention. And perhaps this evening, all I'm going to do is just throw out a few promissory notes as to things that we're going to pick up as we gradually work through the week over the next eight to nine days. Um, so this evening, I'm just throwing out, as I say, a few promissory notes about the sort of things we're going to be doing, the sort of things we're going to examine, particularly in the Dhamma talks as well. Meditation, let me just say this right at the beginning. Um, many, and I see some familiar faces in the, um, out there this evening, um, many will have heard me say this is no such thing as meditation in Buddhism. Um, there is cultivation. The actual word in the original languages does not mean meditation, it means to cultivate. To actually cultivate, for example, insight. So what we're endeavouring to do in a week like this, is to cultivate a little bit of insight, a little bit of understanding of what's actually going on. And if you want a mantra for the week, although this is not mantric meditation, if you want a mantra for the week, that's the mantra. What's going on? What's actually happening here? You know, when I sit, um, when I walk, when I eat, when I do all of the simple things that actually are very much pared down to the minimum in a week like this, because it's a week of silence. And so you're beginning to be able to reflect on the very simple things, um, almost what I call the minutiae of your experience. And so you begin to see it in a lot more detail. Um, one of the promissory notes I would like to sort of flag up this evening is actually life is in the detail. You know, the real sense of our meaning for us is in the detail of things. The bigger pictures often obscure, actually, the little things, the little things that really provide meaning and sustenance in our lives for us. And so when we have this idea of insight, it's insight into the details of our lives, the things that normally, in our hurried, frantic existences, pass us by. You know, literally having time to sit and breathe Setting time to having time to sit and literally see what's going through the mind, what's going on in this corporeal frame, in this embodiment that we are as well. So the practices that we're going to be doing this week are directly from a very ancient Buddhist text, some of you will know, called the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana, sati is the key word, the word usually gets translated as mindfulness. Sati is, is the ways of establishing mindfulness. So Satipatthana is the ways of establishing mindfulness. 
And there are four ways of establishing mindfulness. Don't think you're going to get through all four in a week um, because it takes a long time usually to develop these practices. And the practices usually work from moving from something which is gross to something which is very subtle, something which is directly observable to something which at this moment in time will literally just pass us by. We won't be able to see it because we haven't got the attention span, the ability to concentrate, to see deeply enough at this stage. So we're going to be working initially with the body, particularly, looking at what's going on, paying acute attention to things like the breath. And I'm sure, having looked at some of the forms, many of you have done this before, breathing meditation, many, many styles of using the breath many ways of looking at it, and we're going to be using quite a number of those as we work our way through this particular retreat. However, perhaps one of the things I want to preface the whole retreat with is a question for you, and it's only you can answer the question, it's not me sitting out here to determine what you want to be, why you're here, is in a sense asking yourself that question, why am I doing this? Um, Because obviously it takes time, Um, We sit in funny postures. Uh, We do a funny walk. (laughs) Um, We engage in in behaviour and silence. And all of this might seem, particularly to the outsider, very, very strange. Um, If they looked inside at what's going on on a retreat like this. To actually, what's actually going on here? So I think you need to ask yourself the question. And I often say this even to very, very experienced groups of meditators to keep re-examining your motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. If you're new to it, then just ask your question, what, in a sense, am I hoping to achieve or gain out of this? I can give you the answers that traditions give you as to what comes out of doing these practices, but in a sense, it's down to your own motivation. What do you want, in a sense, to get out of it is going to depend on what you put into it. So the question becomes, for I think for all of us, and I say even for a very, very experienced long-term practitioners, to keep asking themselves the question, why am I engaging in this? What is the purpose of this? Now, the Buddhist tradition has a very specific answer to that. Why do I engage in these types of practices? And it's the elimination of distress. It's my preferred word to suffering these days. Um, you'll often, if you pick up a basic book on Buddhism and Buddhist meditation, you engage in meditational practices to overcome suffering. Well, I think it's usually a word that's a little bit over, it's a little heavy, isn't it? You know, suffering. But actually in our lives we experience many, many different forms of distress. Minor forms of distress and quite serious forms of distress. Existential distress physical distress, monetary distress, all sorts of things that go on for us. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, the tradition is saying, well, we engage in these practices and what we call meditation, which I've called cultivation right at the start of this retreat, what we call meditation is only part of a strategy. It's not the be-all and end-all of it. It's part, it's actually usually a tripartite strategy of hearing the teachings, uh, reflecting on them, and then cultivating them. And the cultivation part is the meditation part. The meditation part is very, very important because it's a way of actualizing the other dimensions, of beginning to see them in action. 
part of this overcoming of the distress of ordinary life, so the Buddha taught, was waking up to the way things really are. That was what he was actually teaching. Um, actually, I don't like the word Buddhism. These days I kind of play around with it. If, if the actual term Buddhism means anything, um, because the word Buddha means somebody who's woken up. That's all it means, somebody who's woken up. So actually, if you want to translate Buddhism into English, it comes out as wake upism. <laughs> That's actually what it means, if, you know, to make it at all intelligible. It's actually about waking up. So it's waking up to the way things are. So it's actually moving out of fantasy. It's out of daydreams. You know, liking things to be otherwise than they actually are. Beginning to bring a clear eye to our lives and living in accordance with what presents itself in ordinary life. Now, all of us, I'm sure, when we look at our lives and the lives of others and those who are close to us, often wish for something else, you know, that things were different, you know, that you know, life had panned out in a different way to the way it possibly has for us or for people who are close to us. This tradition is really saying that, in a sense, is if one is too fixated on that, of things being different then it's a recipe for distress, actually. Um, because where in, you know, where in the, I don't know, the contract of life was it ever guaranteed you were going to get what you wanted? It wasn't at all. In fact, often the more we try to get what we want, life throws something back at us of the very opposite. You know, it's, it's one of those unfortunate things that often happens for us. So it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's learning to somehow live with the full awareness. And this is the word, actually, you will hear me use many, many times throughout the week, go through the retreat. It's living with awareness, living in the awareness of the way things actually are. Now, one of the way things actually are is a big one, and I might as well flag it out right up at the beginning because it's going to be something that we will encounter again and again and again and again in our experience, which is that things are impermanent. They don't remain the same. Um, If you want to have a, I don't know, a quick look at impermanence, close your eyes. Watch what's going on in your mind. You'll see impermanence. One thought comes up and is superseded by another thought, and yet another thought, and yet another thought, and as one particular teacher says, close your eyes and welcome to the madhouse. <laughs> you know, because that's what it's like. <laughs> you know, there's just this constant, constant stream of thoughts going on. So impermanence is something which is going to confront us in our thinking, in our physicality, because we're all changing, Um, And it's something we're going to encounter, obviously, in the world as we move around in it. Things are not remaining the same. And I'm sure we've all been very aware of that, even just with the news that we hear um, from the not-too-distant past. Things are not remaining the same. Things are not stable. They are radically unstable most of the time. Um, How do we live with that? That becomes one of the big tasks. 
Um, it becomes a big task for all of us to try and live with uncertainty, you know, without it stripping away meaning out of our lives. Because the tendency is to somehow see uncertainty as undermining you know, our whole strategies of life, our whole meanings that we you know, erect for ourselves and for others. Um, but the Buddha is actually saying, how do we deal with this radical contingency? How do we actually live with this? Because actually, it's not going to go away. It's just going to be there. And of course, there is the big, big radical contingency, which most of us don't like to think about terribly much. It's called death. You know, and that's going to happen at some point in time. So when the Buddha is speaking about these things and speaking, as, speaking about waking up to them, he's really giving us a very, very realistic view of life. There's also courage in this. There's learning to develop a sense of courage towards life, a courage to engage in life with its uncertainty, with its, you know, with its um, impermanence and with all of the change that we encounter. This radical sense of contingency, as I said, that, you know, that we, we will experience on a day-by-day, often hour-by-hour basis. So we're left having to learn to live with that. So the insight, very specifically within the tradition, and the traditions of Buddhism in general, that has been spoken about, is the insight to be able to live that life, but live it meaningfully in the face of all of this change, all of this trouble that we encounter. So that's a big one, isn't it? It's quite a challenge. You know, it's a very much a challenge. And you know, just the fact that we have a figure in this tradition called a Buddha, and, and really that's just an epithet, it's not a name, it's just an epithet for somebody, somebody who has woken up, well, that offers a big challenge, as I so often have said in this room and to groups you know, wherever I teach. It offers us a big challenge because it's saying, if there is somebody who has woken up, most of us are sleepwalking. <laughs> you know, we wake up occasionally. You know, we see and we have a little bit of insight occasionally. But we don't wake up to the big picture. And that is the big one, really, in terms of motivation. Do you want to wake up to the big picture and live with it? Because from the point of view of this tradition, if you don't wake up to that big picture, it catches up with you anyway. So it's better, in a sense, to wake up to it now and deal with it now on a day-to-day basis, a minute-to-minute basis, than to have it catch up with you in some part of your life where it will... well, it will actually cause intense suffering. And I do use, do that, use that word deliberately. It will cause suffering in your life. However, there are many, many other facets to this path of insight. Um, and they're not separated. Sometimes you'll come, probably many of you have encountered this, you'll come to retreats, which is an insight retreat or a concentration retreat or a kindness retreat, a compassion retreat. Actually, you can't separate them. They're all engaged. They're all actually activated in any of the practices that we engage in. So, let me lay out a little bit of what we're going to be doing in this week. This week, we're going to be engaging in insight, but it is not going to be separate from the development of kindness. Very, very important. Um, The path of insight is often described as a path of seeing. 
You know, you've heard me use the word, that, the, the phrase that the Buddha himself uses, seeing the way things are. Well, as one famous poet says, it's not good enough just to see the way things are. You've got to love them as well. <laughs> you know? And I think this is what it's about, as far as I'm concerned, is actually bringing that into what we're in, into the heart of our meditational practices as well. Kindness and compassion, loving what we see. That's a form of radical acceptance as well. Also engages in concentration as well. Concentration isn't separate from this. It's often developed as a separate practice, something some of you might know this term, samatha, calm abiding practice or concentration practice. It's often developed separately as a self-sustaining practice, but it's right there in the heart of insight practice as well. You know, without the ability to focus the mind, to bring our attention, are you paying attention? <laughs> bring our attention to what is actually going on, then it will just pass you by. Why is this important? You know, I think I've kind of made movements to showing why I think it's important in terms of the tradition. Well, I think it's important for quite a number of factors. The first and foremost being one I've already highlighted is the sense of futility that often goes with life because we're focused on things which will, won't actually provide us with any sustenance, with any happiness. And the things that will, the things that will bring richness and meaning to your lives, the things actually which are in front of your nose a lot of the time, you don't see because we don't focus our attention on them. We don't actually bring awareness to bear on the simple day-to-day aspects, almost the mundane aspects of life. Awareness often, and you might have heard it spoken about in this way or even read it, awareness and mindfulness is often seen as some big mountain that you've got to kind of climb uh, it's out there somewhere. And the thing is to develop mindfulness, to develop awareness. <clears throat> the point is awareness is integrated into your life already. It's how you use it. Okay? Where do you place your attention? There are many, many, many different words, and some of these I'll explore with you during the week, or many, you know, I'll explore them in translated forms, but there's many, many different terms which are used in the original language to describe different forms of awareness, different kinds of ways of paying attention. One classic one is there is wise attention and there's unwise attention. Um, And the Buddha makes it very clear that often our minds are directed to things which are really not deserving of our attention at all. Things which really do not, as I said earlier on, provide us with the sustenance we're often looking for in daily life. He uses a very stark analogy, actually, in one of the texts. He says it's a bit like um, a dog waiting outside of a butcher's shop and the butcher throws him a bone, the dog, which doesn't have any meat on it whatsoever but the dog continues to gnaw and gnaw and gnaw and gnaw, but it doesn't provide any sustenance whatsoever. And in a sense, that's our position often when we bring unwise attention to things. 
We think they're going to provide us a sustenance and we do them again and again and again and again. I feel pretty wretched about it usually um, because it doesn't give us what we want. It doesn't provide that sense of nutriment, of nourishment, of sustenance that it should do. Um, And again, part of what I'll be asking you to look at in terms of your own lives, and again, you have to look at it, not just hear me speak about it, look at it in terms of your own life as to where you or I bring unwise attention to things which are really not deserving of it. Expecting something out of those things which they can't provide. And one of the big ones, it's become again a bit of a buzzword, a bit like mindfulness, is this word happiness. Whatever that might mean for you. Um, The Buddha has a very, very um, specific definition of what he thinks is happiness, which is the greatest happiness is contentment. Actually being content. Not having the mind swayed all over the place by contingency, by the rapid change of events in lives, either your own life or things which are exterior to yourself. It's to remain grounded, to remain focused, whilst everything else is changing. Happiness, often in the contemporary world, is tied up with lots of doing and lots of having. That's where we often equate happiness in our lives. Owning lots of things... um, and that can be from kind of small things to, I don't know, providing good foods for yourself or buying all the latest gadgets and all the kind of goodies that the Western world offers out to us. You know, all of them promise happiness. If you really look closely at those, you know, those adverts, they all kind of promise happiness of some kind, don't they? You will feel a very good person if you have this object, is basically what it's saying. You know? um, and, of course, we all know that that doesn't. <laughs> But we keep on doing it. <laughs> we keep on buying the gadgets. We keep on doing things. Um, or we get caught up in spirals of um, thinking that we are what we do. You know, it's very interesting that um, when you learn other languages, and I'm sure many of you in this room have, when you learn other languages, one of the first verb forms you learn is to be and to have. <laughs> Those are the first verb forms you often learn. So having often gets rather confused with being. Um, there's another one, actually, which is to do. That often gets confused with being as well. I am what I do. You know, and that can be all the roles that might be there in your life for you. you know, it might be your professional roles. It might be your parental roles. It might be you know, wife, lover, whatever in your life, that you have this role and you are what you do in that role. However, I think what is being said, and again this is something we'll explore, is that there is something far deeper going on than having and doing. And it often gets lost. And one of the things which is definitely on the increase, unfortunately, in the Western world, exponentially, is actually wealth often goes up, is depression. a sense of meaninglessness uh, about lives, either individually or collectively. And it's a very sad fact that that's actually going on. 
Um, I think it is going on partly because of very fundamental facts like this, that we confuse who and what we are with what we have and what we do. And we lose out on something which is very, very fundamental. Now, to come back to the theme of what really this retreat is about, what we're doing is touching base with that more fundamental sense. Coming back to the really <coughs> important stuff that just gets overlooked. The philosopher Wittgenstein once said, you know, the Austrian philosopher said, you know, don't think, look. <coughs> Unfortunately, we have too much to think a lot of the time. And that's another way of doing. We think we can, well, we think we can think our way out of sort of problems. Um, in this case, it's actually much more about the looking, the being, the actually observing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, really becoming fully embodied. Yeah. Coming back to this full sense of our embodiment. Now, the Buddha never really speaks about disembodied consciousnesses wandering around. What he's talking about is embodied consciousness. And part of that embodiment is literally this, this fleshly stuff with all of its senses, which can either be abused by overindulgence or it can be abused through asceticism as well by the disparagement of them. Getting that balance right of living our sensory embodiment without overindulgence and without disparagement, again, is a balancing act. And something that is quite, quite difficult to do. Because it's often very easy to swing from one extreme to the other extreme. Yes. Now, many of you will know that the one thing that the whole of the Buddhist path, no matter what the tradition is, um, the whole of the Buddhist path is called the middle way. It's the middle way between extremisms of any sort about indulgence or disparagement or denial. It's about living balance in a balanced way. It's not about also in terms of its thought content having a metaphysically dogmatic theoretical content to it. Everything that is said, anything that you read, anything that you hear, including what's going on here, is to be tested in terms of your own experience, and that is living the middle way. So that you're not falling into extremes of, yes, this is absolutely true, or this is absolutely not true. You know, if I espousal or denial, that we learn to come back to a balanced way of being in this world. So the path of meditation, the path of mindfulness, the path of insight is part of that strategy of getting back to living a sane and balanced life. Yeah. A life that doesn't, isn't constantly swinging between extremes. Constantly acquiring to establish our sense of being in this world. Constantly doing also to do the same thing to establish our sense of being in this world. I think the one thing perhaps many of us are terrified of is being vacuities, being nothing. Um, and so we have to establish a sense of identity in some way. We do it through the ways which are often made available to us, and those are roles, and they are often the things that are around us. So there's nothing in a sense wrong with us, 
It's just that we're using the wrong tools to establish our sense of being in this world. What the Buddha is really trying to do, and what this whole path and tradition is trying to do, is bring us back to a more balanced way of being, where we don't use the incorrect tools to establish our sense of being in this world. Now, those are broad brushstrokes I've given this evening. Um, what I'm going to do is try and flesh them out through the day in terms of the practices and in the evenings in terms of the talks um, to actually try and you know, provide a lot, lot more detail about how we go about doing this and ways of perhaps of just examining, of looking at things, thinking about things. So really the whole week, and I, please do do this you know, if you can, <coughs> is see it as a path of inquiry. You know, it's a path of actually looking at what is going on you know, in terms of the words that are offered to you by myself. Um, they're not meant to be, well, this is the way things are. Look at them, examine them, see them in terms of your own life and see whether it's true. And if it doesn't ring true for you, so what? It doesn't matter. You know, it's really you. You are your own authority. You know, there is no greater authority than your own experience. So it's not about external authorities. It's about the authority of your own experience and learning to trust in that authority through developing insight into it. Now these are big words I've given this evening. As I say, there are things we're going to look at during the week. So forgive me if it all seems like big, big, broad brushstrokes this evening. Um, but it's just a way of trying to set the scene for what we're going to do during the week. I mean, I'll just throw it open just for a couple of minutes just to see if there's any queries or questions about where we're going during the week or you might just want to go to bed. <laughs> Anybody want to ask anything this evening? interesting to hear about the way we might use different senses as part of cultivating mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's quite simple in a way. It's coming to our embodiment so in the, that we begin to open to the experience of the senses. So when we're eating, if you're actually mindful when you're eating, your senses are focused on texture and taste, not just in eating the food as quickly as possible, as is so often the case. I mean... Think about kind of average, I don't know what meal time is, but I mean, I see average meal times for a lot of people is listening to the television, you know, watching television, listening to a radio, having a stereo and having a conversation, doing everything other than actually focusing on texture and taste and, you know, all of those wonderful sensory flavours that often arise when you begin to examine what's going on in taste. To open yourself and hopefully the weather will be good enough for, to do a lot of walking meditation outside, to not just do the walking meditation, but to open to the experience of light, colour, sound, you know, the feel of things beneath your feet. You know, even sitting on the cushion, for example, to experience you know, this sense of, you know, even often we sit with one hand on another, the experience of that. The warmth of one hand touching another, the experience of the buttocks on you know on your cushion, 
you know, the pressure on the, on the floor. Yeah, so that you really begin to live that embodiment. And actually, and this is one thing I really want to say about all of the practices, that you're interested enough to want to do it. Yeah. I mean, that could be an alternative title. I've had to, how are you paying attention? Are you interested? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's the other one. Are you actually interested in bringing your attention to bear on often things that you think, oh, well, that's, okay, what's that going about, you know? You know, to actually want to see what's going on in just those simple sensory experiences which we're having all the time. You know, to walk outside and to experience, I don't know, the wind, the breeze, the coolness or the warmth of it, or whatever it is. Just to experience it as if you haven't experienced it before. So this is a, a waking up, actually, to something in terms of our sensory embodiment to something that's got very lost in our experience, which is a sense of the wonder of being embodied in this way. Does that ever strike you, that? This is just quite incredible. And that every moment of that experience of the wind or the taste of that particular food or the experience of sitting on this seat is unique. I mean, has that struck you? Has that struck you? That is unique. It will not come back in the same way again. And if you try to repeat it, you won't get it. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the week as well. But there is something unique and therefore wondrous to what is going on in this moment. And it will be different from what's going on in the next moment and certainly much, much different from what's going on, say, a year's time for you. So it's being awake and aware in this moment to all of our sensory. All of our senses. Opening to the senses. Fritz Perls used to have a wonder, you know, the Gestalt psychologist, he used to have a wonderful expression, you know, lose your mind and come to your senses. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a very good expression to actually get back into this. Uh, unfortunately, all too many of us, I think certainly in the Western world, it's changing. It's, I've seen it change over certainly since I've been involved in Buddhism over about 30-odd years. Um, a phrase that James Joyce used in one of his short stories, that a certain character in one of his short stories, he said he lived at some distance from his body. <laughs> you know, let us not be one of them, that live at a distance from their body, that we actually inhabit. Because this inhabiting is about being here, actually being here fully. And if being awake in the Buddhist sense means anything, it's about being here. Yeah? It's not some kind of metaphysical, heavenly state that the Buddha offers up, but simply the truth of living moment to moment with the difficulties that come up moment to moment. That was a long answer to a very short question, wasn't it? <laughs> You'll probably find me this. I'm very garrulous about these things. So. When you spoke a bit earlier about our minds, all the thoughts coming in, this is what that thought, and all of that. Um, when we're inhabiting our body and we've got all these sensations and things, hmm. aren't we again sort of hopping around from paying attention to kind of the normal? Hmm. It can be. It depends on what strikes you forcibly. You know, what is grabbing your attention? What pulls you? It might be, for example, if we're doing a lot of sitting, it might be 
that you go to the sessional thinking about discomfort in a knee or something, but then another powerful thought arises and you go back there. But it's actually a controlled way of paying attention, moving the mind with what is arising strongly. Now, obviously, there's an awful lot of sensory experience coming in all of the time, and you could be, as you say, hopping, 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 hopping. But this is learning to pay attention to what is actually striking you very forcibly. I'll say more about this as we go through. But it's not the mind going wildly. It's actually the mind observing in a very much more, I wouldn't say detached, I don't actually like the word detached, but in a much more, in a slightly distanced way. So if it's observing, for example, thinking, you know, and we could just be caught up with one thought after another. Well, that's just thinking. That's what's going on, isn't it? You know, when one thought is arising and replaced by another thought and yet another thought. However, the path of mindfulness, the path of awareness, is like just taking that one brief step back so that instead of thinking it, you're observing it. Instead of being caught up in sensory experience... You're observing sensory experience. And there's a lot of difference. It doesn't sound a lot, but just that slight movement, that slight creation of a gap or of a distance, is the difference between thinking it, being caught up with it, or observing it. So we're very much moving to, and I will nuance this a lot more as we go through, but just taking that stance of observer, beginning to be in that resting place. And that's a place of stillness, actually. The observational place, whether it's in terms of sensory experience or thinking or whatever, is still. Whereas everything else is chaotic. Because so much is arising all the time. But I will... That's going to be one of the themes of the week. Okay, well, I think just to finish the evening... um, We'll just do a short meditation. Okay, now what we're going to do, and I'd like you to do this tomorrow morning, we're going to just spend tomorrow just developing a little bit of concentration, settling you down a little bit before we start to pay attention in the very specific ways that I've mentioned this evening. Now, the locus of concentration nearly always in Buddhist practice, is the breath. And there's a very good reason for that, is because it's life. Also, it's impermanent, and it's different each time. Um, You take it around with you. It makes it a marvellous meditation object, because you can use it wherever you are, no matter what you're doing. So we use the breath in many, many, many different ways. And the way I just want you to use it this evening and tomorrow morning, and then I'll give you some techniques tomorrow of how to learn to use the breath as a concentration object, not as an insight object, but as a concentration object, is just to take your attention, once you've got yourself into a comfortable position. The best position is always with a straight spine, Now, that might mean if you've got back problems or anything, you might want to lay on the floor or sit on a chair or whatever. I have no objection to any of that. Um, The main thing, though, is that whatever posture you take up, 
actually embodies the intention to stay awake. Now, that might sound very, almost very simple, but actually it's very important because the straight spine in general embodies the intention to stay awake. Just notice, for example, when the spine starts to slump, what happens? The head goes down, and that wonderful thing called sleepiness and drowsiness comes over you. (laughs) Now, keeping the spine straight actually embodies that intention, to stay awake and alert and aware. In this case, to direct the attention just towards the breath as a concentration object. So those of you who've been on the Pasana courses, Insight courses before, will probably know that normally what we do is we pay attention to what arises if the mind drifts off when we are using the breath as an object of focus. In this instance, when anything arises, I don't want you to pay attention to it. I'd just like you to bring the mind, when you become aware that you've drifted off from the breath, bring it back immediately to the breathing. Focusing somewhere around the tip of the nose, the actual text, say something like the upper lip, between the upper lip and the nose. So you become aware of the movement of the breath there. Now, to focus your attention, you might like to include counting. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others. So don't worry if you try it and it doesn't do anything for you. So that you're just counting one complete cycle, an inhalation and an exhalation as one. An inhalation and an exhalation as two and three and four and so on, up to ten. Don't take yourself above ten and then bring yourself back to one if you're going to use counting. Now, almost inevitably, what you're going to find is at some point the mind drifts away. You'll find yourself in the past or in the future thinking about bed or whatever it might be and as soon as you notice that don't stay with it don't explore it don't acknowledge it particularly but bring yourself back almost automatically to the breathing to the counting if you're using it don't do it in a harsh fashion try and do it gently Treating the mind with respect. None of these practices are about brutalizing the mind. They're about being gentle with it, being kind to it. But in this case, just becoming aware that the mind has drifted off from the object of concentration, which is the breath, and bringing it back as soon as you can. And it really doesn't matter how many times you have to do that.
Okay, well I hope you have a good night's rest and see you in the morning and if we can do the practice we've just done in the early morning and I'll give you instructions after breakfast. And the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.